It's great seeing you this morning. Talbert, uh, before you sit down, could, would you mind bringing me a little cup with the juice and the wafer just out in the foyer? I forgot to get it between services. Uh, also, just since we're talking about the Lord's Supper coming up, if you're at home, you may want to go ahead and get the elements out in case you forgot. We do this every last Sunday of the month where we observe communion together. And so hopefully you have some juice and bread. If you don't, you can use something else as a substitute because, oh, thank you. As uh, we partake of the elements together, we're not remembering the juice and the bread. We're remembering the body of Christ and the blood that was shed. This is just a representation that takes us back to a much greater reality. So you can substitute something else in because all that reminds us of our ultimate substitute is Jesus. But you might want to go ahead and take that. Also, if you're here, I do want you to know that uh, that's not a gluten-free wafer in here. If you do want gluten-free you need that. We've got some of it back on the welcome desk at the back. So if you need that in order to partake with us, you can just get up real quick and grab that because we do have it available for you. All right. Thank you so much for, for being here in worship. And I just want to say thank you, Alan, praise team. That was fantastic. And for those of you who didn't know, uh, Sarah and Eric are married. Uh, so if it seems they're f- sort of familiar with each other on the stage every once in a while, it's it's okay. Uh, you know, just you know, that's the way we roll. We, although I was like, it was sort of interesting because you know, Eric's over here, Sarah's over here, and Alan's in the middle. Then when Alan's just back, y'all are still like way apart. It's like, come on, man. You know, uh, it's okay. We know you're married now, so y'all can do do this a little bit. Uh, so good to see you this morning. I, how many of y'all have heard of the song Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen? Anybody here? Is that familiar to anybody? It, yes? It, nobody? Uh, wow. Uh, maybe I'm the only one. It's a really, it's kind of a great song. I want to introduce it to you today. I'm not going to sing it. But what the song does remind us of are two things. One, you don't have to actually be a good singer in order to record musical solos. Uh, Leonard Cohen demonstrates this. Joe Cocker, I think, demonstrates this. Uh, and so I keep, I want to bring up Leonard Cohen and Joe Cocker consistently so I have my chance up here to sing uh, with Sam and Eric. I will make this sound so much better. Uh, but beyond that, I love the song Everybody Knows because it resonates with people in kind of a dark way. The song reminds us that maybe not just a few people, but the majority of people kind of have these depressed feelings of powerlessness. Song, it goes like this. Everybody knows uh, the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The, the bad, the poor get poor, the rich get rich. That's just how it goes. Everybody knows. Now maybe, just maybe, some of you, even though you didn't know the lyrics exactly, you were singing that song last week, over the last few days. And if you weren't singing it, maybe you were dancing to it. Or, you know, tapping your feet and swaying. Baptists don't dance, we just tap our feet and sway when the music plays there's a lot of people that kind of feel powerless. 
I got a message earlier this week. I'm not going to tell you who it was from because it doesn't, doesn't matter. And like every message or forwarded text, we can pick things apart and, and argue. I don't want to do that here. I just want to read the text to you so that you get the feeling that a lot of people have. The, the message went like this. The new America. We shut down your employer to keep you safe. We, sh we shut down your businesses to keep you safe. We shut down social media to keep you safe. We collude with your trading platform because only the ruling class is allowed to make money. They will tighten the screws until all who oppose the hypocrisy and tyranny submit. Now, again, I'm not here to argue the points, but you hear the song, right? Everybody knows the dice is loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. But you know it's not coming up 7 or 11. I, I listened to an interview earlier this week. It was actually AOC on Twitch doing an interview with Chamath Palapataya. I don't know if you know who that is. He's one of the billionaires for the people. You've got Elon Musk, a billionaire for the people. And then you've got uh, Chamath Palapataya, a billionaire for the people. I, I'd like for them to join our church, uh, but they don't live around here. But they're billionaires for the people. And Chamath is, is being interviewed, and I thought he said something kind of interesting. He said, Facebook and Robinhood app are the same. They trick you into thinking that you're the customer. But in fact, you are the product, and your data is the asset. These assets are then sold to their true customers who pay them money and always at your expense. Hear the song again? Everybody knows the dice is loaded. Everybody knows. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows. Everybody. You kind of feel that sometimes? Maybe. Maybe in different ways. But from time to time, in different ways, at different times, we feel a little depressed. Like, what's the point? I don't have any power. Now, if that's you and you kind of feel that way, at least from time to time, if not quite a bit, I've got a great passage for you. And the text kind of comes at us in a strange way, but it's actually incredibly, amazingly positive. And I want you to hear this. I want to take your attention to a text. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 21. And there the passage is reminding us that even the devil... Even the God of this world, as it's put in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, even the devil and all of his demons, all of the angels that have fallen from heaven, they can't do a thing before you. Satan and all of those who work with him, they cannot, they can't do a thing. They don't even have a prayer against you because of what Christ has done in your life. I want you to hang on to that. Not just today. Or the week ahead, I want you to hang on that for the, the rest of this year and the rest of your life. Because you need to know that. And I need to remember this. We are anything but powerless, even before the greatest powers in this world outside of God. Now with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. Uh, the text is Ephesians. Again, Ephesians chapter 6. 
starting with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's where we're strong. We'll get to that later. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, by the way, this morning there aren't going to be a lot of notes up on the screen. In fact, there are not going to be any notes on the screen. Uh, I was with my folks earlier this week, Monday through Wednesday, and I just started kind of getting into the message preparation Thursday. Didn't get the notes to Sarah on time, so I just want you to know it's not Sarah's fault. It's Christie's, uh, but it's not Sarah's fault. Okay, but you can just hang with me here this morning. Uh, last week we were in the same text, and we talked about how we have an enemy who's unseen, and we live in this world of darkness. We live on a battlefield. We're soldiers, and we fight together. What we didn't really talk about too much was the uh, power of the enemy, the extent of his power, the brutality of the enemy, and then ultimately the defeat of the enemy. So we're going to talk through these things. And let me just tell you, we're not doing this merely as a doctrinal discussion so you can know something more than somebody else. And we're just going to kind of get out there, you know, we're talking about the devil and then we're going to go home and that was weird. And That's not what we're doing. The reason we're hanging out on the power of the enemy is because in order for you to appreciate the victory that you have won in Christ Jesus, you need to know the opponent that has been defeated. You don't appreciate the victory if you don't appreciate who's been taken down. Okay, Gina, uh, let me give you an illustration here. Gina loves to play chess. She teaches her students chess. She's been learning chess. She's actually really good at it. I never play Gina in chess. You know why? Because I hate to lose. I don't want to get in the game and just get killed. That's what would happen. So Gina can't play chess with me, and we're in quarantine. So you know what she does? She, she plays chess on an app. She, cha- she, she plays chess with people all over the world. But she doesn't know who they are. And so whenever she's playing chess, she loves for me to tell her this. Oh, I'm glad that you beat that person. What is that, like a... Four-year-old in Afghanistan? No, she she doesn't really love that at all. And we do know at least their skill because you're generally matched. You're rated when you're playing on these these apps. But wouldn't it be nice if you beat somebody to know the person I just beat happens to be the chess champion of Russia? That's a lot better beating that person than the four-year-old over in Afghanistan. 
And we're Pakistan or Zimbabwe or whatever the case may be. We don't know where all these people are from. It sure is nice to know with certainty that the person that's gone down was otherwise the champion of the world. But they're not anymore. That happens to be you in Christ. So let's just think through the power of the enemy so you'll appreciate all the more the victory that you actually have when you stand in the Lord. In his strength and in the might of his power. That's why we're talking about the enemy this morning. So you know. Okay, so we we know from the Bible that Satan is this formidable enemy. We recognize that he's fallen from heaven. Jesus says, I was there. I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He says that in Luke chapter 10, I believe verse 18. What he means at the very least, or what is being communicated, you can see this from other passages as well, is we know that Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the devil, Lucifer, he was an angel. He's, he fell from heaven. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4 makes it very plain to us that when Satan was cast out, when the demons were cast out, they were thrown out, they were all thrown down together. and So there's just some sort of rebellion that occurs, and they're overthrown. They're cast out for good. We also know from the Old Testament, you go over to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, you'll see that the essence of the sin of Satan was, I want to be the Most High. I will ascend. In fact, if you're ever reading through the New Testament and you have a cross-reference Bible, always when you get to Luke chapter 7, verse 18, when it talks about, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, almost always there's going to be that immediate reference to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14, where it shows us the essence of Satan's sin. I will ascend. I'll be the most high. In other words, I just want to be the priority. This is Satan. I want to be the priority. I want to be number one. I want the preeminence. I want the prominence. I want all the power. And he is a powerful being. We know from what the Bible teaches that angels are ancient creatures, ancient beings. There's only two beings that are capable of direct worship of God. That would be human beings and, and angels. And the angels got here first. It's like there are these ancient powers, or you might even say it's almost like they're, they're gods that walk the earth. And so if you were to take on the devil or any of the demons and you were not clothed in victory, if you didn't have your armor on, if you just went naked in your flesh, then I'm just telling you, none of the sons of Adam, none of the daughters of Eve stand a chance against the enemy. It would be like going at a tank with a pellet gun. You'd get destroyed. But you're not alone. You're not naked and unarmed. We'll get into that in a little bit. You have Christ. You can stand in the strength of the Lord. You can be strong in him. But it's not just that, you know, he's big and mighty and all the rest. The Bible talks in terms that are so grand when it comes to the devil that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, literally it says that he is the God, Satan is the God of this world. That's very strong language coming from the one true living God. You go over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and you see that that these authorities, these rulers, are princes and rulers, authorities of the air. They're, they're everywhere. But more than just the power and the prominence and the presence that we don't see, we see you know, a vast kingdom that expands in ways that we don't typically think about. Most of the time when people think about the devil, they think, oh, yeah, yeah, ruler of the underworld like Hades or something. No. Or he's just the prince of demons. That's, that's kind of his territory. No. He's the king, the prince of darkness. 
the, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world. It's a vast territory that extends over the majority of humankind. He's the ruler. He's the God of this dark world. You get over into uh, John chapter 8, for example. Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees. And these are Pharisees who've rejected Jesus. And Jesus is talking to them and he says, you think that Abraham is your father. He says, no, no, no. Your father's the devil. Satan's your father. Now that's pretty strong language. But what Jesus is communicating is what is reiterated elsewhere, especially in the Pauline epistles. And that has to do with the reality that there are just two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, and then there's the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of the devil. And, and you may think that you've built up your own little kingdom, but in reality, when you build up your own little kingdom and you're not submitting to the one true king, you're not living in the kingdom of light, you're living in the kingdom of darkness, which is just two kingdoms. Or put a little bit differently, every time a person takes the path of, I just want to ascend, my conscience is going to rule me, you can't tell me what to think. You can't tell me what to do. Even if it's you, God, I'm not listening. I'll be the ruler of me. I'll be the king of my own little kingdom. You have no business exercising authority over me. I'll do life my way. And sometimes it doesn't come across terribly rebellious. It can come across actually kind of kind. Oh, don't worry about it. You do whatever makes you feel happy. Just do whatever seems right to you. I don't agree with that, but that's none of my business because you're the king of you. That comes across really sweet and kind, but what the Bible says is that's kind of satanic advice. Because every time I try to set up the king, the kingdom of me, and I try to be the king of my kingdom, or you try to be the queen of your kingdom, or whatever the case may be, what you're actually, in effect, doing is submitting to a greater kingdom, a kingdom of darkness. Again, the Bible puts it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Now that sounds very strong and, and some of you are saying, Oh, Ernest, why do you have to get so cosmic and overstated? You know how preachers are? I mean, come on, take a chill pill. I thought you were cool. What's going on? Actually, none of you thought I was cool, but I'd like to think that you did. Uh, but I thought, Ernest, you know, come on, let, you know, let's just calm this down. You're going too far, you know, you know, so people get a little selfish and self-centered and prideful on occasion. You know, woo, why do you get so, so creepy? It's not that big of a deal. Actually, it is a big deal. Satan makes it out to be a big deal. Paul makes it out to be a big deal. It's a big deal in the Bible to go down the path that Satan went down and he plays that, that string in your heart. I, I want to be number one. I want the preeminence. I want to be on top. I want the power. I want the control. And, and, and it is a big deal. And when you slow down long enough to reflect on some of those darker moments in your life, you recognize this is a big deal. You've been playing into something that is kind of outside of you or beyond you. Let me give you an example of this. If you ever read this, it'll resonate with you. There's something written by Albert Camus, who is not, who's not a Christian, uh, not a conservative, not by any stretch, uh, but really interesting book. It's a novel entitled The Fall. In this book, Jean-Baptiste Clements is the main character. It's largely about him. He's this lawyer, this prominent lawyer who lives in Paris, and he has this practice, and he considers himself to be a pretty good person because, after all, he does a lot of pro bono work. He helps people who don't have money uh, to get legal help, you know, even though they can't afford it, so forth and so on. Well, one day, one evening, he has a terrible experience. 
He's uh, walking across this bridge, across the Seine River. And he sees this woman over by the edge. She's looking over the edge. She's looking down. She's obviously downcast, disheartened, just staring kind of into the abyss. He walks by her. He knows what she's thinking. When he gets to the other side of the bridge, he hears the woman go over. And he hears a couple of little cries, and then there's silence. From the other side of the bridge, he thinks to himself immediately, what should I do? Should I jump into the water after her? Should I go and get some help? Or do I just keep walking? And he just keeps walking. And then he's reflecting to himself, what just happened there? And the first thing he thinks is, well, the reason I didn't jump in is because if I jumped in, I I could drown. It's the evening, it's night, it's dark. I could have drowned myself. And I didn't go run and get anybody else because if I did, they might think that I was the one who threw her over. And I know I'm a lawyer. I know how these things work. I don't need that kind of litigation and bad press in my life. And then finally, he says, but to himself, he realizes the real reason that I didn't jump in after that woman. The reason I didn't run for help, the reason I didn't do anything is because, frankly, I just didn't want to get involved. And this sets him on a personal, internal struggle. What's happening to me? And he begins to reflect, and he thinks, the reality about me is all of the good things that I ever do, I do on the surface for other people to see. But if other people weren't seeing, I wouldn't be that good because beneath it all, there's duplicity and there's pride and there's only self And I'm just a shell. I'm just an external. And I've become more and more self-centered. And I'm beginning to implode. And all I see is vacuousness and emptiness and self. I don't like who I am in the dark, he says. And every one of us in this room knows if you want to check out your character, be honest. Who are you when nobody's looking? What do you do in the dark when nobody can see? And he begins to realize if a person is defined, if a character is defined by their commitments, the strength of their commitments or the things to which they're committed, he says, I'm just committed to myself, to my self-interest, to my own desires. That's it. And he doesn't like who he is, and he begins to struggle, and he wrestles. What over all the years has happened? What is going on here? Then one evening he crosses a bridge. It's not the same bridge, but it triggers these thoughts and these feelings and they're strong and he begins to talk to himself well I'm better than this person I'm better than this one and that one and that other person then he lights a cigarette because he's wanted to calm down and, and he says I'm you know I'm better than most and immediately when he thinks that at the very moment he thinks that he hears laughter behind him he turns and there's no one there now this is Albert Camus okay he's an absurdist he's you know he's not a believing writer But he talks about the voices, the laughter behind. Jean-Baptiste turns around, there's no one there. What is Camus getting at? He's getting at this. Not that there was somebody standing back there and they ran away real quickly before Jean-Baptiste could turn around. What he's getting at is there are these moments in life when you slow down and you think about the nature of your life and why do you do what you do and what's really going on inside. There are these moments in the darkness where you take a good look and you see, I thought I was in control. I thought I was the boss of me. I thought I was doing things that were right and appropriate, and now I actually feel trapped. I I feel dark. And I don't like who I've become, but I can't unbecome who it is that I've become. I feel trapped. I feel like I'm in bondage. 
And if there's an entrapment, there's somebody who sets the trap. If you feel in bondage, it's because somebody found you. And you slow down and you look into that spot that's beneath the surface of things. And you recognize, I haven't been allied into my own path. I'm, I'm, I have become someone I didn't want to become. How did this happen to me? It's almost like in the New Testament, in the Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about, your eye is the lamp of the body, but if the, if the lamp goes out, if the light is dark, how great is that darkness? And you stop and you look into the darkness and you see you can't even see anything even about you that you want to see. And that's when the veil is pulled back and you recognize, I thought I was being the king of the kingdom of me, but in reality, all along, I was getting played and I am trapped in this kingdom of darkness. And I don't want to be there, but how do I get out? See, that's the power of the enemy. It's not just that he's strong and a giant on the earth. It's not just that he rules the realm of the dead or rules over a bunch of demons. No, he, he rules all who are trapped. You think about all those that live in darkness, all those that are in bondage. That's the extent of the territory of the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. This is a formidable power. And he's brutal. And the brutality of this power comes across in a really interesting way. It comes across in, in the... And let me just kind of back up for a second because I do want to clear the air on this. Sometimes people will read, oh, you know, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, the fallen angels somehow got back in heaven and they're living on the other side of the tracks in the ghetto section or something like that? It's like, no. All it means is these are angels that we're dealing with. Heavenly beings... You know, the, prince, the prince of the air or the powers and the rulers and the authorities of this dark world. You don't need to overinterpret here. But we do see some brutality here in the power and we see it in an interesting way because Paul starts by saying, put on the armor. You know, put on the full armor of God. And then he also says, because we struggle, not against flesh and blood. And the word that's used there for struggle, it's better interpreted, we wrestle. Not against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against these authorities and powers and you know rulers of this dark world wrestle is a much stronger word and a more appropriate word and people have noticed but that seems kind of inconsistent because if you put on the armor nobody puts on armor fighting for battle and then they wrestle that's how people typically think and and, and people might say maybe he's just mixing the metaphors you know how pastors are a squirrel you know and, and he just kind of changes metaphors and just kind of jumps around i don't i want to give paul the benefit of the doubt he's a better preacher than we give him credit for I think he's being very consistent here, and he's pointing to a particular type of soldier. Here's what I mean. When you think about people who are doing battle, who are the ones that actually wrestle, that get down in the mud? That, it's not the generals who are at the back. It's not the artillerymen. It's not the you know archers shooting from a distance. It's not the cavalrymen who are up on the back of the horses, and they're swinging swords and throwing spears. It's the infantry that's going toe-to-toe. And sometimes it's so intense, it's so... It's so filled with anguish. They're so desperate. There's wrestling going on. It is intimate to actually be face-to-face fighting and wrestling with your enemy. Now, I, uh, I never wrestled in high school. We didn't have wrestling in school. Wrestling was a big thing in Texas. But in Oklahoma, wrestling was a really, really big deal. And I had cousins that were close to my age. I had two cousins right at my age and one that was a little bit older. And whenever I'd go up there, we would wrestle. Only in Oklahoma, they told you, here's how you say it. It's wrestling. It's not wrestling. 
And so I'd wrestle with my, with my cousins. That's when I got to know wrestling. And here's what I also got to know. I got to know in the middle of wrestling, you got to know your cousins really well. You get exhausted, and it's intimate. And you think, what about intimate? What do you mean? Well, think about Jacob wrestling with, with God all night. There's intimacy. And, and you get to know your, your in, enemy up front, up close, personal. And they know, you know that they know you and you know them because when you're wrestling, you're all over them. You're on top, they're on top. You're behind, you're grappling all over. It, there's nothing more involved or intimate than wrestling. And he's brutal because his desire isn't to pin you for a moment. It's to take you down for all eternity. He wants to steal, kill, and de- destroy, demolish you. There's no mercy. There's no eight count. That's the enemy that we have to deal with. And if we had to deal with this enemy without any assistance, without armor, we would be absolutely, utterly demolished. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the good news is, wow, that's really bad. Okay, woohoo! can we stop there? No, because uh, I want to get to the good stuff. The good stuff is, you haven't been left disarmed. You have all that you need in order to stand completely and utterly victorious. That's why I emphasize the beginning, which is which I think that's what Paul emphasizes. Here's what you need to do. You need to be strong where? In the Lord and in his mighty power. It's not like you can... It's not like you don't have a place to stand. You can stand in Christ. Stand, stand, stand. You saw that. It's all about where you stand. And if you're in the Lord, you'll be protected. And the good news is, by His grace, by the blood that was shed, by the body that was broken, you can be in Christ. Not defeated. We remember that at the Lord's table today. We remember that. Why is it that I don't have to be defeated? Why is it that I don't have to get crushed? Well, here's why. He was crushed for you. So you wouldn't have to be. He died so you could live. He was naked so you would be clothed with his righteousness. He who knew no sin, the Bible tells us, became sin so that in Christ we could become the righteousness of God. There is no excuse for us because Jesus Christ has for us won the victory and given us a place to stand, which is in him. That's great news. Let me put it to you like this. Last uh, last week after the 11 o'clock service, uh, Michael and April were talking to me about Pilgrim's Progress. Like, and April's like, you know, the place of Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm going, oh. well, I kind of read like the first chapter and I figured out, yeah, 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 John Bunyan's not for me. Uh, but I haven't read the book. But I did go back and I found that I found the passage you were talking about. Yeah, I'm too busy reading atheist philosophers. Sorry. Uh, so uh, she just reminds me of this place, and I have heard this before about how in Pilgrim's Progress there's this place where Pilgrim, who becomes Christian is on his way to the celestial city. That's kind of the, the journey. He's on this path. He's on the highway to the celestial city. And there's this moment where he, he comes to a place where there are lions. And he's terrified because even though they're bound, they're chained, he just thinks, if I walk down this path, they're just going to come from both sides and attack me and claw me and I'll be dead. And the advice comes to him, the instruction, just pick the center line, walk straight down the middle of the path, and you'll be okay. He walks down the center, and of course, the lions come at him, and they're grasping and you know clawing and going after, thrashing after him. And 
And they, they don't touch him. Maybe they come within a half inch or something, but he's safe as long he's, as he walks right down the middle. And the point that John Bunyan, I think, is making here is when you stand where Jesus stands, you walk in the Spirit, you're fine. Or if you want to change the metaphor a little bit, think about all the vampire movies. Where are you safe? In the light. Don't go to the shadows. Don't step into the dark places. Stay in the light. Stay in the path. Stay in the middle. You'll be fine. Stay in Christ. To which some people want to say, well, hey, wait, can't I just go in my own way and kind of do my own thing and take my own path and then still be in the Lord, you know, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his strength? And, and no, that's not how it works. The moment you start doing what it is that you want to do, saying to God, I will ascend, I'll go to the most high place, I'll be the priority, I'll be the champion, I'll be number one, the power will be mine. The moment you take that kind of path practically, you step off the path, you're not in Christ, and you're absolutely, completely vulnerable, or put a little bit differently. The only reason any Christian would ever be taken down is because in that moment they've refused to be in Christ. Because being in Christ is to have the helmet of salvation and the and the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace and, and have that prayer access where God is immediately available to you. That, that all comes in Christ. But the moment you are not in Christ, the moment you're not standing where Jesus is standing, in that moment you're absolutely vulnerable, the enemy only has power over you, that you forfeit to him willingly. We mentioned last week that Satan's only an opportunist. He's, he's like the coyote. The coyotes, the coyotes are not going to bother you. They, they might bother, you know, our little dog. But they're no threat to you. Unless you just lay there and you stick out your jugular or something crazy like that. But coyotes, they're sort of scary. But they're not apex predators. You don't even, nobody should be worried about coyotes. He's a coyote. He's an opportunist. He's not the apex predator. He only has power that you willingly relinquish. Don't relinquish it. So well, how? How do I keep from falling for the wiles of the devil? If he's a, if he's a fighter, if he's a wrestler, if he's wily, if he's, if he's cunning, if he's got all these schemes, how do I keep from giving to him what I don't have to give to him? That's a great question. And um, we're almost out of time. I don't want to leave you hanging. But I will. Uh, you'll have to come back next week. Um, but I do want to end with this. With absolute, utter clarity. Christ has given you victory. I mentioned last week in First um, John chapter three verse eight. It says John writes, "You know why is it that Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil? He's done that." Over in the book of Colossians, there's this wonderful passage, and I'm going to read it exactly. Oh, I don't have to because it's on the screen. But let me read it anyways. Not on the screen. It says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Speaking of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Their, their armament's been taken. They, they're the naked ones. They've got nothing. And it says, he disgraced them publicly. In the victory procession, they were the ones getting paraded through the middle of town. Everybody's laughing at them. There aren't, there aren't the dark voice, voices that are behind you laughing at you. They got laughed at. They got publicly disgraced. Jesus made sure to it. They remember that moment. It happened at the cross. The Bible tells us he triumphed over them in him. Victory's been won. Even though we may sometimes forget this ourselves, the enemy 
all of the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm, they know they've been disgraced. They know they've been defeated. We need to remember that too. That he defeated them, though, only in him. And so that's where we reside. I started the, this morning with the Leonard Cohen, Cohen song. Let me just kind of, I'll give you the EJV. This is the Ernest Jones version. One day I'll write an EJV. Nobody will buy it because obviously I'm not cool. But anyways, uh, here's the rewritten song. The enemy knows the dice have been loaded. The enemy rolls with his fingers crossed. The enemy knows the war is over. The enemy knows the bad guy's lost. The enemy knows the fight was fixed. The cursed are poor and the blessed get rich. That's how it goes. The enemy knows. And I hope that you know it too. No excuses. No powerlessness here except what we willingly give away. Claim your power. Stay strong in the Lord and in his mighty strength. More next week. For now, let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for winning the victory for us. Thank you for giving us a place to abide. Thank you for giving us light in the dark world. Thank you for giving us a path that we can walk. Thank you, Lord, for having us covered. Thank you for being stripped, that we would be covered, crushed, so we could stand and rise victorious. Thank you for what you have done. And may we claim the victory, not simply so we don't get beat up. None of us want that. But may we claim the victory because we know you've already won it. How disheartened, how broken you must feel when you see us refusing to stand on the ground that you have granted us by your grace. How sad it must be. When you see us on occasion being pinned down to the ground by a beaten opportunist. May we not take for granted the work that you did on the cross defeating the enemy. May we not take for granted the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And we take it for granted when we think it only grants us forgiveness. And we forget that it grants us position in you, the victor of victors, having beaten the ultimate enemy. May we feel our power in the best of ways, not as those who are arrogant, but those who are dependent upon a superior armor, a superior covering, and that is Christ. Help us in this time together to remember and to remember well the forgiveness that's been given, but also the victory, so that moment by moment, every day, we are without excuse. And every day, there is tremendous hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we are going to partake.